Have you ever found yourself liking something that by all accounts should upset you more than it does? And I'm not talking about liking certain types of media for shock value. I mean, the kind of thing that cuts down to the very soul of your emotional state and can shake you to your core if you open yourself up to it. It's funny how those things that should make us recoil in shock can oftentimes be the very thing that brings us back from the brink. And I think Zayo does that for me, and probably has done that for all of the Zayo fans that exist across the globe. But to its credit, I think that the Crimson Corridor by Zayo especially is more so than any other release that the band has done. And in this episode, I'm going to dive deep into that album and the emotionally distressing and existentially distressing aspects of it. To try and demonstrate why I feel like the Crimson Corridor is the most important album that Zayo has done so far in their career. And I think it's going to be remembered as one of their greatest achievements. I'm Daniel Terry, and welcome back to DFT's Dungeon. So on this episode, since it's the finale of the third season of the podcast, I'm going to do something a little bit different than I've done in the past. And I'm just going to start the song by song deep dive like right up front, because I think it's going to be necessary for what I'm about to say later to make any kind of actual sense. But what I will say is that this album is existentially terrifying to me, but simultaneously is gratifying in a way that I've not experienced in any other album. So make sure to kick back, hit that subscribe button, grab yourself a drink, and I'll try not to be too long-winded as we get into it. And just in case, you know, you didn't pick up on the sarcasm, it's gonna it's it's gonna be kind of long-winded. I mean, look at the length of the video. The album starts off with a song called Into the Jaws of Dread, and it's completely instrumental. And it's not normal for Zeo to start off super flashy like this, but I really enjoyed the change this time. It kind of reminds me of the first time I heard their album Liberate and how it also started with an instrumental. But this song stands apart from that song because instead of it just being a little two minute intro song with some movie clips, this song feels meticulously composed through and through. And the first thing that you'll notice by the slow and deliberate strumming chords is that this record has a lot of background effects and atmospheric touches from the first second of audio that you hear. We don't hear the drums until probably 47 seconds into the song, but we're already engaged. But finally at one minute and 41 seconds, the song starts slowly introducing more complexity into the music. And the full band eventually kicks in at two minutes and 30 seconds, and yet it doesn't even feel like any time has passed. The most interesting aspect of this song for me is the fact that it builds up a melody that sounds really positive. Like I actually feel really good and hopeful when I'm listening to it, which is not typically how I feel when I'm listening to the first song on a Zayo album. You know, normally we're just ready to burn things down and, and, and walk away. I think on an emotional level, this album is meant for us to feel confident and be expecting something significant to happen, which it does. Because a few seconds later, as those final notes ring out, we are completely torn to pieces by Ship of Theseus. Mm -hmm. 
Ship of Theseus starts off abruptly with a brutal intro, if you can call it an intro, since it's more like just being bashed over the head over and over again by pounding drums and stabbing dissonant riffs for almost a full minute. Eventually, Dan's vocals drop in and the song transitions into a grinding machine of anxiety. And you know, it's funny, I've seen the band play this song live like five times and I'm always standing there with my mouth open like a moron because I just can't believe that actual humans are making this ultra technical and deliberate noise. And this might be as heavy as Zayo gets, at least at this point in their career. And lyrically, the song represents the ever moving tides of change. How certain ideas and establishments are in a state of constant flux. How our ideas and conventions, even down to our physical atoms, are essentially being broken down and reformed with new elements while still trying to maintain their original template. It's probably not just about how Zayo doesn't have any original members left from its original lineup. Hey, hey guys, did you, did you know that Zayo doesn't have any original members? Shut up! But I mean, in all seriousness, the guys that made this album have been Zayo longer than anybody has been Zayo. And on a personal level, this song always kind of catches me off guard because one of the things that keeps me from being super anxious all the time is the comfort of being able to predict the world around me. And I think that's why I like music so much. I like the repetition of it and the memorization aspect of it, the analysis of it. To me, the idea that the world that I wake up to every morning is reformed and different than the one I fell asleep in is existentially terrifying to me. And this is a theme that repeats itself over and over again throughout the whole album, a sort of thematic motif, if you will. Croatoan lumbers in next and it slows the pace of the record down to where it achieves an almost dreamlike state. And that's important, we'll get into that in a minute. It's a creepy and somber song, which is very well accentuated by Scott's singing, which hammers home the dreamlike quality of the song. It eventually starts picking up speed and culminates in a soul-shattering breakdown at the 2 minute and 40 second mark. And I really love the combination of Scott and Dan singing here. Just two totally Jekyll and Hyde different vocal approaches that work together in perfect harmony. The lyrics on the song are equally dreamlike. The lyrics say, here but not here, torn from the axis. And later on, we're unable to awake and we forgot that we are sleeping. We're unable to awake and we forgot that it's a dream. The entire picture this song paints is just dreary and uncertain. It's musically soothing, but still uncomfortable. Emotionally, it reminds me of this old Goosebumps book I read when I was in elementary school called The Haunted Mask, which is about a little girl who puts on this haunted Halloween mask that turns her into this evil monster, or at least she thinks she's an evil monster because towards the end of the book, she's completely forgotten that she's a little girl running around on Halloween. She thinks she legitimately is that monster and she can't escape from it. And beyond that more obvious interpretation, it kind of reminds me of just those sort of intangible time periods that we're not mentally there for. It's just unaccounted for time. How many times have you driven to work and not remember the drive or, you know, falling asleep during a movie or, or maybe sort of zoning out during a meeting. 
those moments where you just aren't really mentally present. And it's kind of crazy how we can actually lose track of big stretches of our lives without even realizing it. Entire weeks have gone by in my life that I just don't recall. And either you can all relate to how scary that can be, or I need to go have a CAT scan done because I think I might have some some problems with my memories. I think the real emotional horror of this song is the idea of getting trapped in a dreamlike state where we just aren't mentally present, but also potentially becoming trapped in that state forever. Even to the point where you might question if the reality that you're living in now is really reality, or if there's just multiple layers of those dreamlike states that we're just constantly shifting between. The final ghost comes in next with its dense opening riff and dance screaming. And it's funny how some of these songs are more laid back and slow building, and then some of these songs just start on a dime. The song settles down into more of a mid-pace without losing that denseness. Maybe denseness isn't the best way to describe it, it's just, I don't know, bear with me here. The only way I can really describe how the guitar tone on this record sounds is maybe not even how it sounds, but how it feels. It feels like being slowly dipped into a pool of cement, but before you're all the way up to your head, that cement starts to harden. I hope, hope that makes sense. That didn't make any sense! Because that's just it. This record isn't really about in-your-face brutality necessarily. Well, with the exception of Ship of Theseus. This is a more deliberate record that's more concerned with delivering brutal implications through atmospheric and lyrical themes. And The Final Ghost is no exception to this. Lyrically, this song tells a series of horrifying stories, starting off with a group of robins ripping a hawk to pieces, and then a raven being murdered by a rabbit, and then finally presents a horrible reality of long-term survival in a hostile environment. It's just visceral and bloody, and I think the stories are painting a portrait of the futility of survival. The scenarios presented are chaotic and unpredictable, and the song points out that even if we're able to survive such harshness, that at some point only one person at the top of the food chain will survive and their reward will be infinite loneliness. The song almost argues that it's better to just coexist with the ebb and flow of our harsh reality, and sometimes even be victim to it, than surviving all the way to the end, like almost as if survival itself is unnatural. I could be way off base here, but that's how it reads to me, which on a personal level is a hard pill to swallow because we all want to survive to the end. We all wanna win the game it's built into us and yet at any point we have the potential to be wiped out in a chaotic or random event is that necessarily worse than surviving all future disasters and being eternally alone i don't i don't really know but sometimes it keeps me up at night thinking about it r.i.p.w starts slow and deliberate with probably the most proggy sounding riff i've ever heard out of zeo and I remember when the album first came out and people kept describing it as the Tool Riff. But thankfully, Zayo is not about to take us down to Tool Town on this song. Despite that semi-sweet melodic riffing that carries through most of the song. Oh, I want to 
When the full band kicks in, this song's deliberate pacing combined with Dan's occasional dips into full-on guttural growls, the whole experience is devastatingly brutal. And equally brutal are the lyrics, which deal with Dan losing a very dear member of his household. And I think it's interesting, too, because despite the sort of harsh reality vibe of the last few songs, this one hits the hardest emotionally. There's a really sad, clean break in the middle of the song with tons of background sound effects going on and this very sullen guitar melody. And this is the part of the album that if you didn't notice the tons of electronic ear candy that I was talking about earlier, this is where it really comes out in full force. And I don't want to give too much of a lyrical breakdown on this song because it's such a personal song to Dan. But I do think that it's a really human moment on an album that is otherwise filled with cosmic terror and the harsh realities of existence. It's comforting to know that despite making an album that is mostly about harsh reality, that there's still some empathy and human emotions attached to horrible tragedies like this. We're allowed to feel, and we're allowed to mourn. And the song ends with an emotional cough before transitioning into the title track, The Crimson Corridor. The song starts off slow and somber, similar to Croatoan. At 1 minute and 8 seconds or so, Scott's singing is brought into the mix as he mimics what Dan says, and they really just sound cool mixed together like that. And it's one of my favorite additions to modern Zeo. But at a minute and 35 seconds, the teeth really start coming out on this song. And lyrically, the song talks about sorrow and fear, and how they infect us down to our core. And they contain everything that we see or do from that point. And obviously this one hits me hard due to having a lifelong battle with anxiety and living in constant fear of some kind of impending disaster or attack. No matter how much I run from it or try to escape it, I can't. I'm trapped in it and it's a part of me. Songs like this are equally comforting as they are terrifying because at the very least I come away knowing that somebody else understands it and has experienced it as well. And my favorite lyrics are the final lines that say, lowered slowly into the jaws of dread, crushed beneath its teeth, suffocating. Transitions is next and it's a more upbeat song, kicking in with some dissonant riffs and piercing screams. The song alternates between mid-paced and mostly fast with an absolutely devastating breakdown at the end with Dan screaming, it is in the transitions. This song continues the underlying theme of this album, which is constant death and decay transitioning into growth and new life. It's morbid, sure, but it's one of the first real glimmers of hope that we see in this record. But it's a more mature kind of hope, the kind that isn't hope for our personal best interests necessarily, but instead it's the hope for the world and the ecosystem around us. Our old selves may pass away, the world itself will carry on reformed from what it was in the past, and eventually that cycle will repeat again as the new eventually grows old and will die away and be reformed again. I mean, there's a reason why decay creates perfect conditions for cultivating life, right? Nothing's Form is the second longest song on the album, clocking in at seven minutes and three seconds. The intro to the song takes a full two minutes to get started, but it establishes the mood it's going for with perfection. Once the song picks up speed, it maintains a controlled pace throughout. And my favorite part of this song is at the end. It sounds absolutely cosmic. I'm not really sure how to define cosmic, but if you listen to the song, it, it sounds cosmic. I don't, I don't really know how to say it.
And I've fallen asleep listening to this album before, and I've woke up during that part several times. It's always comforting. The lyrics on this song are my second favorite, and my first favorite is The Web, but I'll get to that later. This song discusses changes over the flow of time, as Dan gives example after example of people displaying values that are contradictory to their societal roles. He talks of heathens pleading with the sky, converts cursing God and dying. He says, I am the observer, nothing more. And I think nothing's form represents the entire age of the universe and existence as we know it, like all of it, to the point where for every idea or situation that has existed in the past and will exist over the course of enough time, we'll see all of those ideas and situations turned exactly on their heads. And like I've been talking about this whole episode, it's another more macro exploration of that cycle of creation and destruction. And speaking of creation and destruction, Creator Destroyer takes absolutely no prisoners. The introduction of this song is one of the heaviest moments on the album, but it's heavy in more of a doom metal kind of way, more so than the brutal metal fury of something like Ship of Theseus. At the 1 minute and 20 second mark, the song cools off considerably and goes into kind of a moody, melodic interlude that lasts for about a minute and 35 seconds before the full fury of the song is brought to bear. At 3 minutes and 55 seconds, Scott's singing is introduced and ends the song in an epic and spectacular fashion. And you know, when I first heard Liberate back in the day, I would have never predicted that Zeo could be equally as beautiful sounding as they are crushingly heavy. But here we are. This song puzzled me for about a year when it came out. It's full of the typical scary Zeo imagery that we all have come to expect on this album especially. It opens with Dan saying, Mother whispered to the water, trembling she made a plea, turned and said I love you. Then she fed me to the sea. And then he says, Father took me into the forest, tied me to a tree, smiled and said I love you, then watched the wolves devour me. And while I appreciate the horrific concepts and just those lines alone, there's a line later on in the song where he says, the rings of Saturn shroud your mind's eye. And the final words of the song are curse of Cronus. And this puzzled me for a really long time, up until I was reading my kids this book on Greek mythology. See, Cronus was one of the Titans, basically, the original gods who existed before the canon Greek gods. As a matter of fact, Cronus was the father of Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, Hera, Demeter, and Hestia. However, the story goes that Cronus was constantly paranoid that his kids were going to overthrow him. So when they were born, he devoured them one by one, which is where this painting comes from which definitely fits the whole creator-destroyer concept. And of course, Zeus would eventually overthrow his father and the rest is, you know, Greek mythology history. And I know you're thinking at this point, yeah, that's a really, really cool story, dude, but what does it actually have to do with creator-destroyer and the concept of this album and this song? Well, that part I hadn't really figured out either until I was recently playing one of my favorite Super Nintendo games. It's called Chrono Trigger, which is a pretty old now, 
like me, RPG which featured characters who traveled through time to prevent the end of the world. And the main character's name was Chrono, which got me thinking about Cronus again, specifically Cronus with an H, which represents the concept of time. And as we know, time creates and destroys all things. And the interesting thing about Cronus the Titan is that he's also famous in Greek mythology for killing his own father, Uranus, specifically using a sickle or a scythe, which is referenced in the song. There's a line where he says sickle, scythe, and harp. Cronus is also known in Roman mythology as Saturn, which is also referenced in the song, the rings of Saturn shroud your mind's eye. So if Cronus is actually Cronus with an H, then he represents the passage of time. And of course, the passage of time brings what? Death, which would be the curse of Cronus. And he wields a sickle or a scythe, just like the Grim Reaper. And then suddenly this creator destroyer shirt that I bought from Holy Mountain Printing makes way more sense to me than it did when I first got it. And guys, I'm really sorry if all this was obvious to you the first time you heard the song, but I'm not gonna lie, that all kind of blew my mind when I was writing the script for this video. But yeah, the song basically boils down to that same passage of time that created us will eventually be what kills us. It's dark, but again, it's true. Lost Star comes in next and it really picks up the pace with the most Zeo guitar riff to ever Zeo in the history of Zeo. I'm kidding, of course. This song absolutely rages, and it's placed really strategically on this album, which up to this point has had a more deliberate pace overall. This song really serves as a really good pick-me-up from kind of more of the slower songs. Lyrically, it covers very similar ground to the other songs on the album and deals again with the concept of inevitable death and the restructuring of our cells and energy and turning it into new life but it outright poses the question that I'm sure you've been asking yourself this whole time. Why do we exist? And it kind of reminds me of that same type of fear that's explored in the song, The Crimson Corridor. The song spells out that we're born and all we have to look forward to is decay, rot, and fear, all moving towards an endless hum. It's existentially and emotionally terrifying to question whether your life has any meaning at all. There's no answer to these questions. It's just a cold and hard statement of reality. Reality is terrifying when looked at through this specific lens. And finally, that brings us to the web. Back in my well-intentioned virus episode last season, I talked about how great of an album closer I Leave You In Peace was. And I still feel that way sometimes, but I gotta say, the web is a hard album closer to beat. Clocking in at 10 minutes and 23 seconds, the web literally brings together all of the themes and motifs presented on this album and injects them into one of the most beautiful and moving pieces of music that I've ever heard. I know I'm a fanboy and you'd expect me to say that, but I sincerely mean it. This song moved me very deeply the first time I heard it, and I hadn't even read the lyrics yet. 
The Web is one of the most different sounding Zayo songs. It takes three full minutes of mood building before the heavy vocals even kick in. And I'm not going to spend as much time describing every nuance of the song on this one because it's an experience that you just need to have on your own in the dark with headphones on. And also because I kind of spent forever on the creator destroyer thing. And you, you guys probably clicked off the video sometime during that. But lyrically, this is the first time that we're granted any kind of objective positivity to the repeated themes of decay and rebirth. He tackles his own mortality and gives his own unique perspective on death and new life. The lyrics say, if I were to unbind in body or in mind, let it not be a cause for sadness. I will never be gone, just difficult to find. May you be as brave as you are kind. Now the host must change, its atoms rearrange, cast anger from your mind. Yet through the chaos and pain, the writer shall remain. He goes on to say, I will find my way back to you after I have shed my skin. And finally ends the song saying, I will be with you always. I will follow the web back to you. We are the web, long live the web. And this is fascinating because he's quoting the law of conservation of mass here, which states that although matter can change form physically, or chemically, new matter cannot just be created, nor can existing matter truly be destroyed. And while that's scientifically sound, there's an implied spiritual connection in those lyrics that although our bodies and minds may pass away, that we're still all in some way connected based on the configurations that we've had in the past which harkens back to the meaning behind Ship of Theseus and brings the entire album full circle to where we began. This song means a lot to me emotionally because as we've established on several other songs on this album, there is an implied harsh reality at play that in a certain sense, our true selves don't matter in the grand scheme of things. That the passage of time will grind all of our lives, passions, and achievements down into dust. Eventually, the principles that we hold dear will be inverted. That everything that we've created will one day be destroyed. However, if we are to believe that we cannot create anything new, we must also believe that our lives, passions, and achievements that have existed before even we did those also can't ever be truly destroyed. And so the web is that connection, the thing that keeps all of these ideas. It's the plan, right? It's the plan for how things are gonna regrow and how they're going to be reshaped. And although we're sometimes torn apart, we're never truly apart. We're connected by this web. Also, side note, there's a Facebook group called The Web of Zeo that you should totally join if you're a fan of Zeo. And it's an amazing community, and I love everyone in there. And for those of you listening to or watching this who have listened to all of my podcasts, it's not any kind of secret that I'm a massive Zeo fan. I honestly can't think of a band who I've said the name of more times than Zeo which is impressive considering I did a podcast for five years where I talked about a different band every week. I got into Zayo when I was in high school and I remember hearing one song called 
Ravage Ritual from Where Blood and Fire Brings Rest, and it was just the emotional catharsis that I needed after a nasty breakup. There was something about the savagery of the riffs and the absolute jaw-dropping extremity of Dan's voice that stopped me dead in my tracks and sort of reset my emotional state. From that point on, I was a lifelong Zeo fan. And of course, I was late to the party because that experience, as far as I remember, was back in 2002 or 2003, and Zeo had been an established band for quite some time at that point. So I had a lot of catching up to do. And as I listened to every album from Blood and Fire onward, the band became steadily darker, grittier, sludgier, and almost more lo-fi in certain cases. And as I started to pass through my teenage years into early adulthood and faced trial after trial, which was, you know, complicated by a debilitating anxiety issue, it always felt like Zeo was making that same emotional journey with me. Just like any young adult, the band suffered its own amount of well-documented turmoil over those same years. And while I say all of that, don't misinterpret those statements as me saying that these albums were positive self-help or feel-good kinds of records. In a lot of ways, they are detailed accounts of personal human suffering. And sometimes they're dark, sometimes they're depressing, sometimes they're brooding, or in most cases, they're an interesting blend of all three. But the compelling thing about Zeo was that it wasn't that they were out there trying to provide any kind of solution to these emotional issues. It was just the absolute primal scream into the void that their songs represented that resonated with me because I was living it and I felt it as well. As cheesy as it may sound, I always feel heard when I'm listening to Zeo and never have I felt as heard as I do when I listen to The Crimson Corridor because at my age, I'm not gonna tell you my age, just, I mean, just look at my hair. I too have often raged at the sky in futility, just wondering what all of it means, why I'm here and why I exist. And even deeper than that, why I feel like I suffer sometimes more than the people around me do. It's a combination of why me, but also a combination of why anything. So it was that spark of understanding that I gleaned from these songs that gave me this intangible kind of peace about it. Not because I think this album solves any of my direct problems, but it has the same effect as a comforting hand on my shoulder saying, dude, trust me, I totally get it. I feel you. So thank you, Zeo, for not giving in to the temptation to ignore those questions that we all have, but for really digging deep and exploring those emotional places that are frankly terrifying, but also necessary to understand before we can have any real kind of clarity. And that's going to do it for season three of DFT's Dungeon, guys. Like I said at the start of the episode, my name is Daniel Terry. And if you liked this video or this podcast, make sure that you're subscribed to it so that you don't miss season four when it debuts in February of 2024. There's going to be more videos and podcasts to come next year, and I look forward to spending it with you guys. If you're new to this podcast, make sure to go back and listen to the 50-plus audio-only episodes I've made of this podcast. I know I've only done three videos, but I promise there's more to come. And before I sign out, I just wanted to take this time to thank some people for making this podcast what it is today. And those people are Matt Nas and Lauren Kozlowski of the Roach Coach Podcast for all of their encouragement and friendship. Buddy Reno for always being there at a moment's notice. Kyle Stratton for answering DMs well past bedtime in most cases. 
Josiah Heiberg for friendship and also answering DMs way too late into the night. Brian Patton of the As the Story Grows podcast for constant collaboration. Jesse Hawley of Invisible Music for access to all of that band footage that I'm using in these videos. Without that footage, it would just be you guys looking at my dumb face constantly. Jeremy Prince for supporting me from the very beginning. And my brother Roger Terry for always reminding me of what I am actually capable of. And also all of the rest of the guys on Discord. And most importantly, my wife, Melanie Terry, for believing in me and supporting me every step of the way. Absolutely none of this would be possible without you. Every episode of DFT's Dungeon was written, recorded, and edited by me in my dungeon studio. Thank you guys so much for supporting what I do. I'll see you here again next year and next season.